Today's Bible reading is from the book of Leviticus, there it is, Uh, from the start of chapter 9 through to the beginning of chapter 10. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil. For today, the Lord will appear to you. Then the 22, was it? Thank you, sorry. Verse 22, Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Thank you, Mark. And next reading, I don't think it's on the screen there, but it's... um Hebrews 10, 1 to 27, and apologies for the confusion, it's entirely my fault. So, uh, Hebrews 10, from verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever 
those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sins for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, six to eight, it's your time to leave, enjoy. Good morning, everyone else, and good morning to those who are online. Apologies for the mix-up with the, with the passages. I sent, it's not entirely Jono's fault, I sent the, uh, the first passage to Jono, and then two days later I said, Jono, can we please change it? And um, he's been busy, so that's okay. I don't know about you, but I've never met the Queen of England. I've been there, never met her. I probably never will meet the Queen of England. But I do understand that before you meet the Queen, you need to learn some proper rules of etiquette, uh, of what to do, what not to do when you're in her presence or approaching her. But the basic rule is don't be chummy or overly familiar. Respect and proper formality are essential. Even Prince Charles bows down to his mother and calls her ma'am. Now, in Australia, we don't have royalty, and so we probably are a bit too chummy in how we might greet our leaders. The more important question is, how do we enter God's holy presence? Uh, Is he our good buddy in the sky? Can we just barge into his presence and ask whatever favours we need? Or is there a right and wrong way to enter the presence of the King of Kings? Now the truth is, one day we will all stand in God's glorious presence, either for commendation or for condemnation. The difference will be determined by whether in this life we have come into that holy presence through the way he has provided. Now what's interesting is the narrative of Leviticus 9 and 10 draws attention to two 
different ways in which the Israelites chose to approach the house of God, or to use Ben's terms, chose to ascend the mountain of the Lord. And in these passages, we see two different manifestations of God's glory, of his presence uh, as a fire, and it's as a result of the way in which his people approached him. Now, before we look at chapters 9 and 10 in a little bit more detail, I just want to quickly recap what we've, uh, where we've come from. Um, we've learned over the past few weeks uh, that the Old Testament tabernacle was designed to teach Israel how to enter the presence of the Holy One. We established that God has taken up the tabernacle as his dwelling, earthly dwelling, but at this point there was no way open for Israel to approach him safely. That is, while the tabernacle represents this kind of new creation, so to speak, filled with the glory of God, there was yet no new Adam for this new creation. That's where Leviticus comes in. With the opening verses of Leviticus, God dwells within the tabernacle and he begins to speak to his people, revealing the way uh, back in, the entry, kind of the way back into the tree of life, so to speak, back into the presence of God. And the way back, according to Leviticus 1 through to 8, is through the blood atonement and burning of consecration of sacrifices, which God instituted. And then this brings us to chapter 9, the high point of Leviticus, or at least the first high point of Leviticus. It's the high point because it's here we begin to see the answer to the question, how can Israel dwell with the Holy God? It's the high point because it's here we get to read of the promise of God's appearing to Israel. Friends, you can label Leviticus 9 as the triumph chapter, the triumph chapter. Now, we read at the, at the end of verse 4, apologies, I should say, there are no verses on the screen. Um, if you have your Bibles open, that's great. If you don't, pull out your phones. If you don't have either of them, I will be reading the verses slowly. So we read at the end of verse 4 in chapter 9, these words. For today the Lord will appear to you. And then again in verse 6 we also read, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Now as with the arrival of any important visitor, so it is with God. The way needs to be prepared for his coming. And this is exactly what is described. Verse 1 begins with the words, On the eighth day Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And then the passage goes on to continue with Moses giving Aaron the, the elders and Israel instructions or commands to follow in order for God to appear to them. The verses describe that if God's glory is going to appear, people need to go through a preparation and things need to be put in place before he comes. Otherwise, it won't be safe for them. Everything in Leviticus, everything throughout, uh, since the Exodus till now, has been leading up to this moment. This moment in chapter 9. The moment that the glory of the Lord appears to Israel. Where Israel may safely come into his presence. And as I said, for this to happen, they had to do what God said. And this is what we read in verse 7. It says, Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar Sacrifice your sin offering, your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Now with all the offerings prepared and with the people camped at the front of the tent, God instructs Aaron to make atonement first for himself 
and then for the people. Blood atonement and burning sacrifices are needed both for the priests and the people for the glory of the Lord to appear. And with the verses that I asked uh, to not be read, verses 8 to 21, I did it for you guys. Uh, We've gone through how the kind of sacrifices go over and over again. So verses 8 to 21 basically go on to provide a detailed account of this, the sacrifices, you know, what actually is happening, the process of which they're um, sacrificing those those offerings of atonement for the priests and then for the people. Now, I'm not going to cover these in great detail, but I want to say three brief things about them before we move on. Number one, what's done in verses 8 to 21 is done in accordance with God's commands. What God commanded, they did. Number two, the offerings remind us and show us the imperfect obedience of the priests and how they needed their sins atoned for first. Every time the sins offered sacrifices, offerings for, to God for the people, they had first had to cleanse themselves. Number three, the order of their sacrifices were carefully planned. And that testifies to the order that is truly acceptable to approach God. Sin must be dealt with first. Consecration is renewed second. Gifts are offered only after that. And then finally, fellowship is enjoyed. But the sacrifices were never ends of them in, in, in and of themselves. The objective for Israel was that they would encounter God. But it couldn't be so unless they offered sacrifices, unless a blood atonement sacrifice was offered. And what's the result of all of this, of these sacrifices um, that, that they followed? Let's have a look at verses 22 to 24. And we have these words. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down down this is it friends the result was blessing acceptance revelation entry into the presence of the holy god the, this these verses here resolve the crisis the tension that we saw in exodus 40 if you remember moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting and if he couldn't enter then no one was able to And so the fundamental question of how Israel was going to be enabled to draw near to the descendant God, it remained up until now. What unfolds here is that the sacrificial system worked. Humanity can dwell in God's presence. It's really hard to portray the wonder being described here. Two human beings are given entry into the house of God. Two human beings have access into the very presence of the almighty God. But I want us to notice also that Moses and Aaron's entry, um, it only comes as a result of the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering. That's in verse 22. Notice also that Moses and Aaron, who get to experience this fellowship, don't experience it for themselves. The phrase that all the people in verses 23 and 24 reveal this communal nature, this corporate nature. While they're given access to go into God's presence, their purpose is for the sake of the people. Their entrance sanctions all the people to see God's glory. 
And this signals a new development, a new stage in the relationship between God and Israel, the long-awaited experience ushering Israel into a deepened relationship with the Holy God, is met with a fitting response. They shout and fall on their faces. Now, John and I were talking about this earlier. The NIV says they shouted for joy, and then they fell on their faces. The ESV says they shout, no joy there, and fall on their faces. I think it's both. I think they first shouted because of the fire that came out, in fear but then it consumed the sacrifices and that shout then probably turned into a shout of joy and then subsequently they fell on their faces and worshipped God he truly lived among them the object of worship had been achieved friends fire came out from before the Lord it consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar but that fire of God still represents God's righteous and holy wrath And it was meant to consume Israel, but it consumed the sacrifice instead, which meant that God accepted this sacrifice. Now, as with most stories of the Old Testament, after the ecstasy comes the agony. We see it over and over again, don't we? While chapter 9 closes with a high point of Israel's uh, direct vision of God's glory, chapter 10 begins to remind us that this new axis has opened a new threat. This triumph soon reduced to tragedy. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 3 have these words to say. It says, Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Now, I don't know if you see this, but this image here seems to be the exact reverse to the triumphant ceremony we read in in chapter 9. In chapter 9, everything was done in accordance with what God had commanded. Here in chapter 10, we're told that they offered unauthorized fire before God, and it was contrast uh, to, the, to God's commands. In chapter 9, fire fell, uh, came out from before the Lord, consumed the sacrifice offered, which meant God accepted what was being done there. Here in chapter 10, fire comes from before the Lord, and it consumes Nadab and Abihu, which means God is judging them for their disobedience. You see, God's fire either consumes the sacrifice or the sinner. In chapter 9, the authorized uh, offering glorified God. His glory appeared before the community and everyone worshipped him. Here in chapter 10, the actions of Nadab and Abihu were not done to glorify God, but God still glorifies himself through his judging of Nadab and Abihu. Either way, both ceremonies show that God glorifies himself. One was done to glorify God, the other one God glorified himself. And finally, in chapter 9, the entire community shouted for joy, and they fell face down. And here in chapter 10, Aaron remains silent. Complete contrast. But why? So why do we have these two together? They're paralleled, and they both happen on the same day. 
and they function together as a complex symbol. They want to illustrate one thing, that the implications of this new relationship with God that was initiated by the sacrificial system, that there are these implications. Both of these episodes are necessary to appreciate Israel's newfound nearness to God's presence. Seen together, they show us that the only way of approaching God is the way he himself has revealed and the way he himself has opened. So while God has opened a way for humanity to enter God's presence, the only way to avoid danger is to enter through the way he has revealed. Now, friends, these chapters are extremely significant in the drama of redemption. The triumph, chapter of, uh, the triumph of chapter 9 and the tragedy of chapter 10, they have this kind of forward-pointing trajectory about them. These, these chapters provide hope, chapter 9. They create tension, chapter 10. And they propel the drama of God, redeeming a people for himself, through to chapters 11 to 16 of Leviticus, which we'll see soon. And then finally to their perfect fulfillment in Christ in the New Testament. You see, these chapters are a sign, a a symbol, if you will, of the beautiful and fuller reality that was to come. You see, in chapters 9 and 10, they do at least two things. They provide a measure of hope for Israel. They point to the grace of God. That although he didn't have to provide a way for people to be in his presence, in his grace, he made a way through the priesthood, the sacrificial system, for people to ascend God's mountain, for people to dwell in his presence. And number two, they reveal that the only way to God is the God-revealed way. That is, the man-imagined way, it doesn't cut it, it won't work. Now, as I said earlier, these chapters are a sign, a symbol, of the beautiful and more fuller reality. And I want to show you uh, from the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, uh, we learn that what's going on in here, which we had read a portion of it, but basically the entire book of Hebrews shows us this, that what's going on in here in Leviticus 9 and 10, um, actually more than that, what's going on in the priesthood and the sacrificial system is but a copy. It is a shadow of the heavenly reality. Essentially what I'm suggesting is, and what Hebrews is suggesting, is that there was a limitation in the priesthood and the sacrificial system that was instituted by God in the Old Testament. It was a copy. It was a shadow. The heavenly reality was the real thing. It was something greater. For starters, in, uh, in Hebrews, particularly in chapter 10, we learn that although the sacrifices of uh, bulls, goats, and calves made a way for people to enter God's uh, access, give access to people to enter the almighty and holy God's presence, they could only approach him so far. Hebrews 10 tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, sacrifices had to continually be offered every single year in order for people to draw near. And if this was a concrete way to be in the presence of God, those sacrifices would have stopped, but they didn't. We read that they had to do them every single year. And it was a way of reminding the people that it could not take away their sins. So the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, were both pointing to something greater that God was going to provide. And that was absolutely necessary to dwell safely in the presence of God. Now, friends, that something greater, I should say that someone greater, is Jesus. He is our perfect sacrifice. He is our perfect priest. 
these sacrifices offered as part of the system were offered continually, otherwise there'd be disfellowship. Jesus offers himself once and for all. The priests offer the sacrificial system repeatedly. Jesus offered himself once. The great high priest offered himself for us once in his body. The Old Testament sacrificial system never perfected anyone. Jesus, by offering himself once, has perfected for all time those who are being set apart by God. Also, although this priesthood that was instituted by God made a way uh, for priests to mediate between God's people and God, if you remember, the priests weren't perfect. They were imperfect. They offered sacrifices for their own sins before they could actually approach and work on behalf of the people. So they weren't perfect, but the concept of the priesthood in the Old Testament was really pointing to Jesus, our greatest high priest who was to come. This perfect high priest who didn't have to offer sacrifices for himself because he was perfect. But instead, his body, his life, his blood was offered as a sacrifice, as a sacrifice for you and me to atone for the sins of his people. Friends, Jesus, in offering himself as a sacrifice, went through to the most holy place. The place that the earthly priest could only enter once per year. And guess what? Jesus is forever there. To use the mountain analogy, if you remember when uh, Ben had the slide up, Jesus is at the summit forever after having offered himself for us. He's forever interceding for his people. That is something that the priests, the earthly priests, couldn't do. They were human. They couldn't do this forever. Yet Jesus could, and Jesus did. And so that's why this system is pointing forward. It's a copy of the heavenly reality. The heavenly reality is what Jesus has done for us. Now, a couple of implications from this. Um, there are many implications you can make from this, but if you're not a believer, the implication of Leviticus 9 and 10, of what we understand of Jesus from the New Testament, reveals that God in his graciousness has provided a way for his people, for people to dwell in his presence, and is revealed that way to come through a blood-atoning sacrifice. And that blood-atoning sacrifice is Jesus' life and his body. This earthly tabernacle system in Leviticus was a copy. Jesus is the heavenly reality, and God has provided that way. Jesus himself says these words. He says that you have no other way to approach the Father but by me. So, if you're not a believer, and if you're not coming through Jesus as your sacrifice, essentially, you face a fiery judgment on the day the Lord Jesus returns. The second implication, if you are a believer, although we can approach the throne of grace boldly and with confidence because Jesus is our great high priest and our perfect sacrifice, we need to remember that our God is still that consuming fire that we meet in the Old Testament. It's still the same God. It's just that we are his sons, we are his daughters. We have Jesus interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. We have Jesus who has ascended to the most holy place and we have Jesus who has reached the summit of the mountain. 
Now with that, we can, and yes, we should approach the throne of grace boldly in all times, especially in our time of need. But we do need to appreciate that God is holy, that he is a consuming fire. We do need to appreciate the glory of the weightiness of God. A well-respected theologian, his name's David Wells, had these words to say. He said, the contemporary problems of the church have in part been attributed to our lack of appreciation of the glory of God. He goes on to say that many Christians today lack a proper understanding of God's glory. That is, the understanding of God's glory by many Christians today, he argues, is weightless. He says, the otherness of God, that transcendence, has been so diminished to the point that where we now believe in a God who serves us, where we now believe in a God who satisfies all our needs, where we now believe in a God who therapeutically fulfills our every desire, rather than a God we must obey, and rather than a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. Friends, Leviticus 9 and 10 and the heavenly realities that it's pointing to shows that we can approach the throne of grace boldly and we should because of Christ, but we mustn't forget that God is, a, is still a consuming fire. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if we understand how extremely to the point of what God's holiness is, it'll lead to worship, it'll, understand, it'll teach us um, our need for grace and our, a, a better understanding of grace which would lead to gratitude. I want to ask a question, and I don't want you guys to raise your hands. I'll finish with this. We often say that Jesus um, saves us, right? Have you ever wondered what he saves us from? You might be thinking he saves us from our sins. And you're right. He saves us from our sinful nature. And you're right. He saves us from slavery to sin, and you're right. He saves us from hell, correct. But I want to say fundamentally, Jesus saves us, or God saves us through Jesus, from himself, first and foremost. He saves us from his wrath, so from himself to himself, so fundamentally, that's it. And the sacrificial system was pointing to that. God was put forward this copy at that time for Israel to save Israel from himself so that they could fellowship with him and eventually point to Christ who will do the same thing for all eternity. That's grace. And that leads to gratitude when we understand God's holiness to that degree and understand that he's saving us from himself, it points to us prostrating and worshipping our God and really appreciating who he is. Is that not grace? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two fires that you revealed in Leviticus 9 and 10. Lord, we pray and give you great thanks that you have made a way for people to dwell in your presence safely. We thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice. Lord, please help us as your followers to never forget 
that you are not created, that everything that exists is created because of you and that you are outside of your creation but you participate with your creation because you love your people. Lord, never let us forget your transcendence but in the same way, continually remind us that we can approach you because of Christ. Allow us to hold these things together as we give you gratitude. May we live lives that glorify you and appreciate what it is that you have done. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.